0: Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Thank you for coming out, and good morning, everyone. My name is Todd, and you are at a Veterans Breakfast Club event here at Memorial Park Presbyterian Church, and we're very grateful to Jamie Dean and to Paul Becker for hosting us here. This is a wonderful place, and uh, we're grateful that, that uh, we're here today. We always like to begin, yes. Yeah, let's give a round of applause. Thank you, Dan. Uh, We always like to begin with the National Anthem, and today we are having the youngest National Anthem singer I think we've ever had, and that is Jordan Herman. Jordan, would you mind leading us in the National Anthem, please?
1: Oh, say can you see By the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming, whose but stripes and bright stars Vener yet wave or the land of the free And the home of the brave
0: Wow, she's quite small to have a voice that big. Thank you very much Jordan, that was beautiful. I know we have a few people who are here for the first time so I'll just talk a little bit about who I am. My name is Todd and I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club and we've been doing these kind of events for eight years and the mission is to gather veterans together with members of the public and have the veterans share their stories. It's an educational mission and I think it's a healing mission also. I think these are stories that our veterans need to share and I think there are stories that civilians, non-veterans like me, need to hear. And we do this about 40 to 50 times a year at various places around Western Pennsylvania. And, um, and then we also record veterans and, and uh, do formal interviews with veterans. Uh, today, this event is being recorded by Kevin Farkas, who is our media director. And our goal really is to capture, share, and preserve these stories. This is an important mission, I think, and I think it's just as important for non-veterans to be here as for veterans. Because we are a nonprofit. we really get by on donations and grants and, and sponsorships, and we have two sponsors today. One is Concerned Veterans for America, and that is Chuck Schrenkel. Chuck, thank you for coming out today and sponsoring this event. I'm not sure I really need a mic, but, uh,
2: well, I am, uh, as you said, I'm Chuck Schrenkel with Concerned Veterans for America, and we're happy to sponsor this, and. Uh, and to the, the people at Memorial Church, wow, what a great job you always do, and, and it's a pleasure to come here. I have actually a long drive, it must be five, six minutes uh, to get here, and uh, I enjoy it. Anyway, I, I just talking about, Todd asked me to hold this to 20 to 30 minutes, and I will, just to just uh, give you an idea of what the CVA is, Concerned Veterans for America. I want to tell you what we're not. We're not asking for money. We're not asking for contributions. We're not asking you to buy anything. And secondly, and probably even more importantly, we're not trying to privatize the VA. What we are doing is collecting voices. Okay, this is the sole purpose that we have. And these voices are, are used, are typically, the, the goal is to get the attention of our elected officials so that they become accountable to our veteran population and become supportive of veterans' issues. Now, in order to do this, we're mobilizing veteran voices and veteran families and veteran advocates across the country. We expect, by election day, to have 300,000 veterans going to the polls, many of whom haven't been to the polls. Uh, Typically, uh, believe it or not, veterans tend, uh, in a lot of cases, not to want to vote. Okay, uh, we are calling all over the country, certain states, uh, calling the country to identify veteran households. At some point, we will be alerting them to a an issue that might, might be coming uh, up in Congress. The issue might be, for instance, the VA Accountability Act, now the 21st Century Heroes Act, which is in the Senate, and it, it's a simple thing. It authorizes VA management to fire their bad employees for cause. This isn't arbitrary, if you have somebody that needs to be fired, isn't doing their job, well, we wanna get rid of them, and that's what this act does. Uh, The other thing is, when the time comes, uh, there's gonna be a major push. It's election time, get out the vote. Uh, So you need to be talking to your elected officials to voice your opinion. We don't care what your opinion is. We care that you're a veteran. And we, our elected officials, need to know what, that we are attentive and interested in veterans' issues, and they ought to be supportive. And again, we're not going to tell you how to vote when the time comes. We're just going to hoping that you're going to select candidates that are sensitive to veterans and supportive of, of veterans' issues. Now, I'm going to bring your attention quickly to the best deal in town. We've got flyers on the on the table. Okay, this is the Defend Freedom tour. Friday, uh, Saturday, the twentieth, this coming Saturday. Uh, this it's a dinner, and it's a happening. We will have speakers. We'll have music. Uh, it's highly patriotic, highly energetic, uh, and and the speakers that we have on the list here, the lady Karen Vaughn is a gold star mother, lost her son in Afghanistan, in a terrifically wonderfully. Uh, motivating speaker the man on the left Jason Beardsley is a uh, uh, Army special former army special forces in Iraq and Afghanistan the guy's a horse and a great and a great speaker I you know army ranger. I told him I could still take him, but uh, Fortunately, he didn't take me up on that. It's a, uh, so anyway, this is a just a fantastic opportunity the goal here is to energize people to take off and say, yeah, I'm a veteran, I'm gonna be contacting my elected official, I'm gonna hold them accountable, and I'm gonna vote for the person that supports veterans issues, okay? This is what we're trying to do. It's free, we'd love you to come, it's family friendly, bring your kids, grandkids, uh, certainly your wives, your spouse, Uh, but it's a wonderful evening. I would, uh, we're asking for an RSVP if you know before you leave here, that you are interested in going, please just give me your name and I'll, I'll get you signed up, okay? So any questions, any additional brochures, I have them. Uh, any contact information you want from me, I'm gonna be here till the last dog is dead today. So, uh, so uh, uh, thank you for your time and I will turn you over to the, uh, uh, you know, the moderately successful head of the v-
0: Thanks, Chuck. That's- <laughs> That's the nicest thing Chuck ever said to me. Pam, thank you very much for coming out today from St. Barnabas to sponsor this event.
3: Good morning, everyone. My name is Pam Whiteis. I'm with St. Barnabas Health System. Probably if you're from the Pittsburgh area, you've heard of St. Barnabas. It's a huge health system. We have about 2,500 residents who live with us. I just want to tell you a couple of quick things, and I'm available to talk with anyone afterwards if you have questions. I put some flyers on the tables, and I also have my business card there as well. Um, Just to give you a quick overview, we have everything from independent living for seniors, which most of you are, to uh, assisted living and to nursing care. So basically, we're a continuum of care is what it's called. So it's a great place to come and stay if you are a retired person and are interested in a retirement community. It's a wonderful setting. It's nice and quiet up in Gibsonian Valencia. Uh, we do offer some financial aid for people and um, Basically, it's, it's just something you, you know, certainly keep in the back of your mind. And one last thing, if you ever have to go to the hospital, say you have a heart attack or you have a fall, you go to the hospital and they say you're not ready to go home yet, you need some rehab therapy, it's called, for a week or two, think of St. Barnabas. We have wonderful rehab, wonderful therapy, seven days a week um, to get you strong enough to get back home. So that's all. If you have any questions, please let me know. And thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Pam.
0: I do want to remind everybody that this is our calling card. This is our newsletter, which has our schedule through September. Another one will be coming out next month, which will have our schedule through the end of the year. Uh, I still have... Several hundred, maybe a thousand of these left in my garage. So I would very much like it if you would take a stack with you home and just spread them out wherever you go, to your church, to your library, to your VFW or retirement community. This is how we get the word out about our events. So please do, we'll have them available on the back table as you, as you head out, you could just take a stack. And if you don't get this in the mail, we send about 2,000 of these out every three months. If you don't get one in the mails because we don't have your address, please leave your address with us so you could get the new newsletter next month and know about our events coming up uh, through December. We also have some items for sale. My favorite is this magazine, which is our second issue of Veteran Voices, the magazine of the Veterans Breakfast Club. And what we do with this is we publish, we select some of the stories that have been told at our events and in our interviews. We write them up with photographs. This is a real keeper. And uh, this is our second issue. They're all World War II stories. It's 10 bucks, a real bargain, as is the wonderful biography of Bill Malden. What a great book that is, right, Ray?
4: (laughs) All but
0: the author. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, the book is great. The author, not so great. Ten bucks. I'd be happy to sign it. Um, uh, I still think it's a great book. We have hats. We have these lovely shirts for 30 bucks. So please do purchase them if you're interested. Uh, I also want to let you know that, you know, in addition to doing these public storytelling events. We do interviews, and the director of that project is, is Kevin Farkas, standing right here. He's the media genius and a, a genius in many other ways. He's a great writer, which I just hate that he's a great writer. Um, but Kevin uh, you know, Kevin really directs this project where we get veterans in and we interview them. There's pictures of two veterans being interviewed up there. Bob, that's you being interviewed. We got your story. in Reej. We got your story. It's painless. We have you come in, sit for maybe an hour, Dan. Not a big deal. And you talk about whatever you wanna talk about related to your service. We'll ask you some questions. And then that material is curated, it's edited. We upload it to our website. We send it, transfer it over to the Heinz History Center to be preserved and made available to the public. Uh, This is really a big part of what we do, to get the fuller stories. Because here at these breakfasts, we cannot get the fuller stories. And that reminds me, do not be offended if I take the microphone away from you. (laughs) We only have a 90-minute program and You know, we would like to get as many stories as we can in our program. And we always leave more stories here than we could possibly tell. So we do like to limit the stories to, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. But every once in a while, I do have to yank the microphone and I feel badly about that, but you know, don't don't punch me out, okay, if that happens. I do want to remind everybody, we have a wonderful event coming up on September 9th. We did this last year. This is at the 9/11th Airlift Wing. It's a breakfast just like this. I think we had 220 people there last year. And it's really special because as you can see from these photos, they pull a uh, C-130 up into the hangar. This is a hangar breakfast. They have static displays of a Humvee and other engines and other things like that, weaponry. And uh, we do the storytelling just like we do here. Uh, I do need your reservations by August 30th, and unless you have a retired military ID, I will need your birth date also. I need to have your birth date with your name as it appears on your ID, so that you could get on the base. So, no use lying about your age, Cheryl. Just give your honest birth date, and uh, and it has to match what's on your ID please do consider attending. This is a wonderful event. It's 15 bucks. So if you want to give me 15 bucks with your birth date, I'll make sure you're on the list and you get on the base, all right? And you know what I found last year? This was a complete surprise to me. Not knowing, you know, airplanes or ships or equipment and stuff like that, not being a veteran, I was surprised at the powerful response of so many veterans to this airplane. It turns out that so many of you Worked on it or flew on it or saw them, and they were a real workhorse for the Air Force. I know Ben Wright here, our pilot, flew them, uh, flew them in Vietnam and elsewhere. And, um, and I'm just wondering, I, I, John, I see you nodding your head. You remember this C 130? You were on one of You worked them? And what made them special? They were easy access to work on, very easy. Everything, the, the electronics bays were easy to
5: get to. yeah. And uh, just, I worked in avionics, anything with instruments. And it flew, I worked on it. And uh, it was a joy to work on. This half the time I didn't have to use test equipment because the pilot and the co-pilot, they had the exact same equipment. So I, all I had to do was switch plugs off of one gyro to the other to check a lot and it out and to see if it would work. And most of the time was just take one gyro out, put another one in, because that was one of the things that would stick a lot. And everything was easy access to all the hydraulics and the wiring was easy to get through the bulkheads. So you didn't have to crawl like on a fighter. So that was a lot easier to work on. It was a good workhorse. It was a reliable airplane all around.
0: And it, what stunned me looking it up last year was that I think this thing was put into service in the early 1950s and it's still in service today. Yeah. I mean, they're s- still around. That's how well designed they are. And I, I know they've been improved over the years, but that's so interesting to me. Larry Gamret, where's Larry? Oh, right here. (laughs) Larry, I I remember you saying you remember these in Vietnam. Yes. uh, The the C-130,
6: just to give you an idea, if you read Jane's book of aircraft, uh, there's at least one C-130 in every country in the world, and it's built by Boeing. And there was different versions of it. I think it was like a 130, there was a 125 model. And now there is another brand new model, which has been updated but what they call a glass cockpit, and uh, the crew's a little bit less. But we flew them in Vietnam, and they were the airlines of Vietnam as far as I'm concerned. Anywhere you wanted to go in Vietnam, you sure bet we're gonna be on a C-130 going somewhere with it. Uh, I also was a paratrooper out of one of them, and I did that in Vietnam. I did did it in Vietnam off a helicopter, but in the United States I did it out of the C-130. Of course, they didn't let us do it because we were an easy target jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. In Vietnam in combat, where I was located at uh Phu, one time we were taking off and they started mortaring the runway. They tried to get the runways and they tried to get us when they seen us. And the plane just took off, it took off like a fighter jet, and we were on that kind of an angle. They used to leave that back door open for emergencies when they were taken off. And all I could that see. That doesn't was seem the like drying. a good idea to me.
0: They they leave the back door open when, for yeah. emergencies? What does that mean? You're gonna fall out? Yeah,
6: they left that cargo door open while we were leaving. So if the plane crashed or wrecked or did something, all right? You didn't have to open the door. <laughs> you had a chance to get out, you know? Uh, like the pilot would tell us, you know, he said, find a hole and jump out, you know? Find a hole and jump out. Yeah, right. 3,000 wow. feet in the air. I don't know what you can do <laughs> with that one, Yeah. You know? Once c 130 I flew out of the 9 With or rode out on the 9-11th, there was eight parachutes on that. Now I asked the loadmaster, I said, where's the rest of it? There were 30 of us on the airplane, yeah? And he said, that's for the crew. (laughs) And I said to him, well, I'm an old Vietnam veteran. And I said, I know how to use that parachute, and I know how to open that back door, too. I said, I'll have that on, and I'll be out here. And I said, you'll be wondering where the heck you were. (laughs) And he was laughing like the devil, you know? But I did ride him after Vietnam out to 9 11th Air Base. We used to take orientation rides with cadets, and medical people, and I worked, I guess, about three years with the Air Force, uh, what they call um, medical medical evacuation. They would convert the whole plane over to a a hospital, complete hospital. And that's one of the things you might not see out there this time, I'm not sure. And then they would have just every two years where they would uh, train doctors, they would train us on how to help people that were in, in a disaster area. The last one I think I was on was, there, it was a disaster in New York. They brought 200 and some people out of New York to volunteer to do it. They put them on a C-130s and brought them into Pittsburgh. And then we flew out, circled around Johnston and come back. And then they loaded them on ambulances and took them to the uh, 911th Air Base Hospital. Some of them they flew into Pittsburgh at Presby Right. On helicopters, medevac helicopters to teach everybody how
0: to handle an, an emergency, emergency like that. So this was a very resilient plane. It was a stable plane, easy to fix, easy to work on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of and a- it also was a
6: combat aircraft too. Because uh, I think I showed you pictures where they mounted them with machine guns. And uh, what else? Oh, they used to have, they, they called a bomb uh, Bertha, Big Bertha. And when they needed a runway on the Ho Chi Minh Trail or something, they had a parachute on this bomb and they would drop it out the back of this plane and it would blow a hole, probably bigger than this room. So they could land helicopters and infantry in there. Wow. So, but it wasn't a very good plane, you know, you didn't want to go up into heavy combat because it was too slow and it would get hit. There were so many of them, Uh, they're used in the Coast Guard, they're used uh, all over the world. There's not one country that doesn't have at least one of them. That's how all and like I said, the other one was going in to this one base, And they were so big and slow when they were landing that a crosswind caught it. And I was looking out the back door. I could see the South China Sea behind me when we were coming in. The next thing I know, I was looking at the mountains. I was looking at the mountains, you know, on each side of us. I'm saying, what the heck is going on here, you know? And then the plane was going like this. Now, it doesn't have buggy wheels, so that means that, you know, you better land straight or you're gonna have a problem. And the pilot brought that right in, man. The plane actually, did like that and we were heading towards the mountain that's how much wind you know what they call a crosswind yeah and uh, the pilot brought it in and I think some of the best pilots that I ever seen were the U.E. pilots Chinook pilots and the C-130 pilots they when they come home they were in great demand because of their combat experience and their ability to fly those planes and of course if you get on a C-130 when you're there if you go to that you'll see a big road map on the inside of the aircraft, on the installation. It tells you everything that plane has and where it is and how to get to it and everything. They even have ladders in a toolbox. And, and uh, you know, he said he never had to use it yet, but, <laughs> you know, they could actually fix them, I bet you, while they were in the air, they had to. How about that? you was 125 you very much. technical manuals up where the pilot was.
0: Larry, you know your stuff about the C-130. Yeah, that was, that was my favorite airplane. That wow, so I'm glad I went to you. This is great. Thank you, Larry.
6: I found out that I could get a ride in one, you know. I immediately joined the Civil Air Patrol because I wanted to ride it. Because you plane. wanted to ride
0: it. Well, you'll get to see one if you've never seen one if you come to the uh, 9-11th Airlift Wing event on September 9th. And I do, do hope you can make it. Let's get to some storytelling, and let's start with Al Sopka, who is here today. Al, that is you, right? Yeah, that's me on a bus car. And you were obviously, that's a, you were a paratrooper. Yeah, paratrooper. How did you end up, why did you join the paratroopers? I, I was
7: drafted into the 8th Armor Division, and I ended up with a artillery company. Every day we would clean at 105, and the machine gun turret and that. The lieutenant would come around and ask if we did it. I said, yes sir, they both cleaned and oiled. He says, take them apart and do it again. (laughs) I was walking through the hospital, there was a sign. Volunteer for the paratroops. I walked right over there and signed up. <laughs> Six other guys signed up, but when it come time to go to Fort Benning, I left alone. They all backed out.
0: Why did they back out?
7: I don't know, but I still, I, I love to be in a, in, a, in a paratroopers. You did love the paratroopers, huh? Yeah. And I I fought in three campaigns for them. And I I got wounded on Christmas Eve, 1944, spent five weeks in a hospital. Tell me um, how you got wounded. We were sent up there in the battle of bulge. 35 of us, we were supposed to, they put us in a position to hold the Germans back. But while we were sitting there, nobody was coming, you know, so we, I was in a foxhole by myself. And this young fella come over, and he said, hey, Safka, can I stay with you till we move out? So he, he came in a hole with me, and about 15 minutes later, the Germans came. And we were fighting them off, Then uh, while this battle was going on, two guys from... Uh, our line run away. They ran up the hill. We were up at part there and shooting at the Germans down below. These two guys run away. And then the Germans start going through that opening. We turned to fire on them. When we put fire on them, one of them run up uh, in our position. He threw a grenade into my foxhole with this young fellow that just come over, and he had killed him, and uh, I was wounded, and uh, I crawled about 40 yards to where the sergeant was, and I was telling him what the situation, and he told me we were going to get out of there anyway. We held him long enough, and when I end up in a hospital for five weeks, then I come back.
0: They sent you back after they, yeah. after you healed up a little bit. Yeah,
7: I want to tell you a story about uh, when, when I was, uh, I was at the, with the paratroops for six, about six or seven weeks, and we were ready for, to go in combat then. We, we were packing our bags, and they had a stencil or numbers on them. And I looked down the road, and there was a, a civilian walking up there. I'm watching him, he looked familiar. It was my dad. He wanted to see me before I got to uh, go overseas.
0: And that's a picture of your
7: dad right there? Yeah, that's right. He was in the First World War.
0: Did he give you any advice?
7: (laughs) He, He said, He told me that when I got home, he says, you made me sick when you joined the paratroop. (laughs) But I was overseas nine months before the outfit I left come over.
0: You told me once that you wondered if you'd be able to shoot at somebody.
7: Oh yeah. When I got drafted, my mother said to me, how you gonna shoot at anybody? You don't even really want to shoot a rabbit. <laughs> but that changes, I'll tell you. When you see some of your buddies getting hit and stuff like that, you don't think
0: about that anymore. So once you get in combat and get shot at, once they're shooting at you, yeah, that kind of solves that problem?
7: Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm going to brag a little bit. Sure, go ahead. I got the Purple Heart medal. And they give me the bronze star medal for how I was in combat. And I uh, have the combat infantry badge and I was overseas for uh, 18 months, I think.
0: Here's another picture of you. Is this at your house? Yeah. Where did you grow up? I
7: grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Manchester. And I'll tell you something. When I was born, it was the Depression, and how did that for a start? My father was from Russia. I was my, my mother was from Poland. I was born during the Depression, and I was a hunky. <laughs> but I, I I I was the best draftsman in, a, in my room when when I was working and. I always strive to be a little couple points up above average.
0: This picture looks like it was taken somewhere nice. There are palm trees in the background. Oh
7: yeah, well, you know we were on uh, furlough down in southern France. The two other guys there. Uh, that guy in the center, he was a platoon sergeant, Jim Kurtz, and the other was another guy. Was uh, he was like me. He, his name was Newski or, uh, you know, like a Polish fella.
0: So when you get a, a furlough like that and you go to southern France, and I guess when the furlough ends, you have to go back into combat, I take it. Is it tempting yeah, not you, to go back? I mean, to...
7: Well, you know, when that Battle of the Bulge was on, the Germans had gotten out of that uh, off the coast of France and they were back to their country and... Uh, well, you know, we had a fight for them. That sort the of war ended. Are you in this photo also? Yeah, that's me in the middle. I'm taking them drunk guys back to the.
0: <laughs> oh, you're taking them back, huh? Yeah. Okay, that's that's the story we'll go with. <laughs> I.
7: I'll tell you, being a paratrooper, I had a lot of fun, you know. And then here's the final picture. Yeah, boy, when I I was packing my bag and my dad come walking down the road, I told the sergeant, I said, that's my dad. He says, take him up to PX and buy him a beer.
0: (laughs) And that's what you did?
7: Yeah. Oh, how great. And then I left, and but, but he told me when I got home, he, he didn't like it because I joined the paratroop, but I loved that.
0: You loved it, huh? Do you remember coming home? I mean, do you remember getting aboard the ship to yeah. return back?
7: Yeah, you know what? We, went, we, we were the last ship to take the northern right home. 17 days on one of the Liberty ships that was building... Uh, on a, on a Neville Island or somewhere.
0: <laughs> well, I thought we'd never get home, you know. Did you come into New York City? Yeah. What was it like to come into New York Harbor and see the Statue of Liberty? Did you?
7: Oh, yeah. When you see that, you felt good. And, you know, I always, I always try to be a little better on uh, everything I did. You know, uh, when I, I worked for a company for 28 years, and they told me I was the best draftsman in the room. And there were college guys there and everything. And I got on a softball team. We went 23-0 one season. And a company guy got us all a trophy. I pitched 16 of the games. So I did something. So you had
0: a rough beginning, but a, a good end. Yeah. Thank you very much, Al. Yeah. Thank you for coming today. Thank, you. Well, thank you everybody.
4: I just want to say that you can go to veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com and you can hear Al's complete interview, which is really an amazing interview, but I also want to say that I made a little audio short story called My Dad, based off of the story you told about your dad finding you before you shipped out. It is one of our most popular stories at well over a thousand downloads from all over the world so you're a bit of a celebrity
0: How about that Al you're a celebrity
7: I I was started to go to the dances you know and the, the prettiest girl there I didn't even think she'd dance with me but we we got together and I eventually married her. Wow. (laughs) How long were you married? Happy years.
0: (laughs) How long were you married?
7: Yeah, I'm asking you if you mean happy.
0: happy. (laughs) (laughs) How about happy and unhappy put together? How many did it total? (laughs) I, oh,
7: I love the girl. She's still home, but she's Ill a, a little bit more than me, I guess. She just had a, one of pacemaker hearts put in. She's beautiful yet, though. I, I, uh, I love her very much. Thank you so
0: much, Al. All right. Thank you. I don't think John Temashenko is here. John? No, I don't think he, I don't think he made it. I, you know, it was interesting. Uh, he called me to ask me to send him a map of Korea. So I printed out a map of Korea, put it in the mail, and he showed up at the next event with the map all marked up of where he was in Korea. And I just thought it would be fun to have him talk about it. So maybe we'll get him next time. We will then go to a Vietnam veteran Ray, Emilio, that's you. That would be me. That would be you. Um, this is Ray. Is our He's the president of the board of directors of the Veterans Breakfast Club. He has devoted a lot of his time and energy and expertise to this organization. Thank you for that, Ray. You're welcome. And you are a veteran. I am. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this today. uh, We we have your name badge here, which you're not wearing. It keeps falling off. It keeps falling off. Hold that mic close, Ray. Okay. Uh, It says Navy, but you were a Navy corpsman. And so I I always wonder, what should your name badge read, Navy or Marines?
4: Well, probably
0: both. What? (laughs) If you had to choose
4: one. Well, Navy. Now the thing of it is, uh, and I always kid my marine buddies, the Marine Corps is part of the Navy, and all the support for the Marine Corps is our Navy people. So, um, just have to put that out there.
0: Thank you for that correction. You're welcome. Where was this photo taken?
4: That is at Kason. Um I was there during the siege. I don't know why I was smiling, because it wasn't really a happy place. Um, And interestingly enough, in the evening, over the top of that bunker or that protection, big rats would crawl. Uh, Big rats. The biggest rats I ever saw in my life were in Vietnam. And it was kind of a spooky place. I think
0: you told me that when you landed at Khe Sanh, which was during the siege, during the Tet Offensive, when you landed at Khe Sanh you were told how to get off the plane? Well,
4: it was a C-130. It was a C-130. It was a C-130, and there's a little story behind it. When I was on leave, uh, before I went to Vietnam, I told my mother that my underwear needed to be tinted because I had all white underwear and it had to be tinted green. So I went on my way and had a good time while I was on leave, and the night before I was leaving, I went to pack my underwear, and she had tinted them the color of your shirt. I said, I said I said Ma, that's not the color they're supposed to be they're supposed to be the color of this duffel bag she said, well I don't know that's the color green I got at the store <laughs> so I just packed them away in my duffel bag and then I flew to Vietnam and interestingly enough you flew to Vietnam in commercial airlines you know I flew to Vietnam in a brand of you know which was really crazy uh, so anyway I got to Bai to get my orders and um, they said that the other two corpsmen that were there They said when you get to your units, you'll get your flat gear, but you you'll get your flat gear now And I said why are they getting theirs with their unit? They said well, you're joining the 26 marines and they're at case I said I knew it. I told a girl I was dating I said I know they're gonna send me to the worst place in Vietnam Which they <laughs> did so the way this worked they said we're going to fly up and and um, When we go down, the C-130 will land. It won't stop. It'll keep on moving because of incoming. It'll drop the the, the tailgate. You run out, and there's going to be a trench line at the end of the runway. You get there because there'll be incoming. Oh, my gosh. So the first time we went up, we started to go down. All of a sudden, he swooped up because incoming started to go. So we flew back to Fubai, and... um, he said, well, we, as you can see, we didn't make it this time, we'll try again later. So we went up again around five o'clock. I thought, maybe we aren't going, but around five o'clock we went back up and uh, he, we started to go down, he landed, we ran out. And of course, as I was running, I dropped my duffel bag and I hadn't put the lock on it and it flew open. And all this green underwear <laughs> flew down the runway. So when I, after the plane took off and the incoming stopped, and that was kind of traumatic in itself because that's the first time I'd ever heard anything like that. The guys came out and they said, you're the new corpsman. I said, yeah. They said, what was all that stuff flying down the runway? So do not even ask, don't even ask. <laughs> so I just gathered up my stuff and uh, that's what happened. So before you became a corpsman,
0: and I do want to get back to that, you were not, you were a Navy technician on a ship.
4: I was a Navy corpsman on a the Navy ship. A Navy corpsman on a ship. Right, and that's in St. Thomas. Uh, that was my that was my happy part of my service.
0: Hey, I was just going to say, I mean, did you think like, oh my, I, I might be able to get away with ship duty?
4: Well, I was in for three years. I got a, I had a my buddy and I we went to Duquesne for a year and a half. and I didn't want to go to Duquesne. And Father McInaulty sent us a letter in June of 65 saying we had to sit out a semester to figure out what we wanted to do with the rest of our lives.
0: Why did you have some problems in class, Ray?
4: Well, I majored in beer and pinochle. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to go away to school and my old Italian father said, no, you're going to commute. I said, I want to commute. He says, it's not a question. So we went to Duquesne. So as soon as we got the letter in June, in August, we got a draft notice. and It was my best friend, who I still see all the time. said, David, do you want to uh, go into the Army? He says, no, why don't we get a... So he found this three-year enlistment in the Navy, which we, and it was a deferred enlistment. We joined in November, didn't have to go on active duty until March of 66. So we went to boot camp. Ultimately, I ended up on the USS Wasp, and it was a corpsman, and David ended up... Uh, as a quartermaster, and he ended up in Paris. I ended up in Vietnam, ultimately. But anyway, when I was on the ship, I was on the the USS Wasp for 16 months, and I was with the Marine Corps for 20 months. And when we were on the Wasp, one of the things we did, we picked up Gemini 12, which was really a cool thing. We picked the capsule out of the water. The space capsule. The space capsule. Buzz Aldrin was the one um, astronaut, and I forget who the other one was. I have that at home the next time I'll bring that that information. I think you... That's it. That's it? That was it. Uh, It talks about, doesn't it say recovery operations in recognition there of, yeah, GTA 12, Gemini 12, and does it say who we picked up? I forget.
0: It doesn't say who, no, it just says Gemini, GTA 12. Right,
4: Master in the Recovery of Gemini Spacecraft, and we had a big celebration. Oh, at the bottom it does? But does it say who they is Oh, Buzz Aldrin and... Um, oh, it does, yeah.
0: Edwin E. Aldrin and, 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 and
4: James Lovell. James Lovell. That's yes. The, that's who they were. Yeah. So oh, they well, gave me. all of us one of those on the ship. I have a newsletter that shows pictures of the celebration as well. So it was pretty cool. So when
0: you learned that you were going to be heading to Vietnam...
4: Well, I found out. They got me in my last year. Well, I I got sent in my last year because I was discharged from Vietnam, but in June of 67, the the wasp went into dry dock, and as soon as that happened, I got my orders to go to Camp Lejeune for field medical training. And then I was down in Camp Lejeune from July till the end of the year, and I thought, hmm, maybe I won't be able to uh, get, because they wouldn't send you over there if you didn't have a full year. On December 15th, I got my orders for Vietnam. (laughs) So I was there for my last year.
0: So what was your job in Vietnam?
4: I was a field corpsman. How does does that work? I was a senior, well, I was part of 1st Battalion, 26 Marines, and... There we were in 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 the defensive line, and they were taking incoming and everything. But then we would go out on patrol. So
0: you would go out on patrol with the Marines. With the Marines, were you armed?
4: Did you have any? All I carried was a forty-five to protect myself. But my job was to take care of wounded Marines, which I did on a regular basis. And uh, after Quezon broke up in April of '68, uh, we moved over to uh, the Ashau Valley in. um, I think it was south of Da Nang, and our, uh, our unit really had some bad casualties. Uh, over the course of that time that I was in the field, I was wounded twice, and then I was transferred to the 3rd Medical Battalion at Quang Tri for the remainder of my time.
0: Could I ask you, this is probably a stupid question to you, do you have any idea how many Marines you treated with wounds, do you have any idea?
4: Well, I'd have to say a couple hundred. Because a couple hundred? At, at the Medical Battalion, they would come in, we had a triage unit, there were 10 cots on each side, and we, when, they, when they were coming in with helicopters, you'd have a team of corpsmen working on people. In the field, probably 40 or 50 over the course of my time, and that was ones that are wounded. Then they had, you know, you had mala- um, dysentery and other things you were treating them for as well. Right. Uh, that's the, some of the corpsmen. That was outside of Denang. After we got out of Swan, we went onto to Da Nang for a while, and we were there for a couple of weeks, and then we, trans- well, then we went into the Aishau Valley. So those were some of the corpsmen. And I was an E-5, so I was equivalent to a sergeant, so I had junior corpsmen reporting to me. That was, uh, that was my typewriter, and those were cookies that my mother sent me, uh, which was always a welcome gift. Yeah, there they are, and that's when I had hair. <laughs> that was one of my mother's biggest disappointments when I started to get, go bald, because she loved my hair.
0: So, is that a package from your mother that you're opening? That's
4: a package that my mother sent me, and I took that paper. I don't know if there's a, and I made a um, plaque to hang outside the tent. Is that the next picture, Todd? No, oh. no, that would be, that would be some of the girls that came up to entertain the troops. Uh, that was, that was fun. That was, we went up on the top of the hill, looking down. That was looking down. At our encampment that was outside of Denang. Nang. Uh, I just wanted to sh- take a picture to show how that would be. And that was up in, if I'm not mistaken, that was on Wonder, uh, near Wonder Beach. And that was a little village that we had gotten into. And the guys were taking some rest. It was like it getting to be around sunset. And that's again in Quezon. Is that you? That would be me. And that was just a that was just a photo shoot, that's okay. all. hero
0: <laughs> I, picture, a hero I, uh, shot.
4: I don't even know whether I know how to fire that M16 or not. I guess I'd learn if I had to. That's the cell, that is a uh, formation where I'm actually getting a purple heart. Tell me about getting wounded. Uh, well, there were two times. The one time um, a grenade exploded behind me and it hit me in the back. And it wasn't too too bad. And the other time, it hit right in front of me. And fortunately, there was dirt like this, and I threw up my hands, my arms, it, your arms, my arms. Not enough to send you home. No, no. Nope. I was there for the whole twelve. You months. were there. Yeah.
0: Tell me, you're, you're, you know, your your mother is sending you packages, and you were close to your family. When you came home. How in the world could you possibly tell your Italian mother and Italian father what you experienced in Vietnam? Did you ever tell them? Did they ever ask?
4: They did, and that was, that's one of the reasons why I've worked with veterans all these years, because I came home, and within a month, I was working at, the, at U.S. Steel. That's where I met my wife. I was in the order entry center. And I just picked up things and just continued to take on my life, And I've always wondered and worked with why some people can get through things and just go on and other people can't. And that's been something that's been in my mind and the work that I do for the last almost 50 years now.
0: And you said that you had a a, a kind of a nice homecoming when you came to San Francisco. Somebody bought you a drink.
4: Well, I was discharged from Treasure Island and it took two weeks to get discharged. And over that time, we would go out in the nighttime, and and I always, you know, you hear stories about Vietnam veterans not being treated well. That never happened to me one time. Everybody treated me very nicely, and people bought me drinks, and I remember one night we were at a piano bar, and they had bought me too many drinks, and we were all singing, and um, I think I fell off the bar stool, but you know, but everybody treated me really well. I can never say that anybody ever said anything derogatory to me. It was my experience. But I know that on the seventh day, I remember I called home and my father said, when are you getting home? And I said, I have to wait till they discharge me. He said, if you're not home in two days, I'm coming out there to get you. And I said, I said, well, I have no control over that, Dad. I said, you know, it's, I'll get there when I get there. And I know that one story that I always tell when I got home My buddies took me out to celebrate, and my mother had prepared a big dinner. Now, this this gives you an idea of an Italian father. So I got home, and I was pretty, pretty blasted. So then, you know, I sat down at dinner, and I got through it. And later on the evening, my father said to me, he said, I know you've been through a lot, but don't ever come home like that again. (laughs) I went, oh, okay. Then I went back to Duquesne and loved it. And when you went back to Duquesne the
0: second time, were you a little bit better student?
4: If I didn't have to keep the grades from the first year and a half, I'd have been on the Dean's List every time.
0: (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ray. one
4: One more thing that I... I'm in the process of putting a book together called Doc Emilio's The Other Side of War. And what we're doing is collecting stories from veterans, but we don't want the serious stories, we want the funny stories. So I'm in a process of putting that together. So if you have funny stories, we're gonna start collecting them. And then if they don't make the book, they'll go onto the website. And it's scheduled to be published in 2018. Okay. So if, we're, we're working on that now. If you
0: have a funny story, send it to Doc Emilio, right. or let me know and I'll send it to Doc Give Emilio. it to Todd, okay?
4: Yeah. Or I'll interview you, whatever way you wanna do it. But we want funny stories. And I know you all have them, even in combat, because I know I do. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ray.
0: Hey Dan, how are you?
8: I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was up today. No, you didn't know you were up. I'm I'll, not, supposed to, I'm not what, supposed to be up today.
0: Uh, you know, and I want to say- Can take, I tell my funny story? Uh, let, me, let me, these pictures are pictures that were brought in by vets like Dan, and I just make a copy of your picture. I take a picture of your picture, I don't need to keep anything, And I show them at a future breakfast. And that's what I did with Dan. He brought in his photos. I made some quick copies. So I do encourage you all to bring in photos of yourself in the service. Please do. They're just great. Here's one of Dan. And the reason, Dan, could you stand up, please? The reason I'm showing this is when Dan left a message to make a reservation for today, he said, this is Lieutenant Lieutenant Dan Tellup, C Company, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. So you still, all these years later, still, that's a part of your identity, who our, you are. It's our
8: DNA, brother. It's, it's DNA. in your DNA. George, it's our DNA. It
0: is. When did you join
8: the Marines and why? Uh, long story. Basically, 1966, or 1964, I went through the PLC program at Quantico. But my What's PLC? Platoon leaders class. Okay. But my father, once when I was eight or nine years old, put me on his leg and he said, son, I want you to remember something and don't ever forget it. That was very important. He sa- I said, what, Dad? He said, your God is the most important thing in your life. Don't ever forget it. Your second highest priority is your country. Your third highest priority is your family. Make sure country comes before family. I couldn't wait to get to Vietnam. Really? Yes.
0: I think this is you in
8: Vietnam, correct? Correct. That's not Khe San, That's uh, Gio Lin, Ray, or Khan Tien, north of Dong Ha.
0: And what was your role? Were you a platoon leader?
8: Well, I was a platoon leader until my company commander got shot. Then I took over uh, Charlie 1-9 for about two or three months. How old were you? 22.
0: So you were a 22-year-old company commander?
8: Correct. Commanding how many men? Well, unfortunately, a a a rifle company at that time had four platoons, one of which was a weapons platoon. But we had, George, very small numbers. I would say
0: maybe 40 troops. 40. It's almost like a platoon, really. Yeah. That's a lot of responsibility for a young man. Loved it. Did you love it? What did you love about it? Can I
8: be honest? Yeah, that's what we're here for. Um, I enjoyed hunting the enemy. It was fascinating to me. Uh, how to win, and how to make sure that we don't lose any lives in the process. Don't take any risks. But I love the hunt. Not terrible. And
0: were you successful in the hunt?
8: Yeah, we were very successful. Really. Yeah, there was only one time we were not successful, and that was the second day that I arrived in, or third day I arrived in country. We got beat up pretty badly.
0: What was your first experience of combat? Do you remember it?
8: remember it as if it were yesterday.
0: Really? What was it like?
8: Well, I was a, a young, do you want me to tell the story? Sure. Really? Um, when I got off the plane at uh, Ray and George, um, Da Nang, I flew into Dong Ha, but when I got off the plane in Da Nang on a C-140, I stepped over three bodies in a body bag. And uh, so this is the first time I even saw a body bag or even knew what one was. I looked at all three body bags and they were all second lieutenants. And that was a wake-up call for me. Then went into Dong Ha, uh, met my company commander, Captain Hutchinson, took over a third platoon of Charlie Company, and uh, Bravo Company uh, went into the DMZ to rescue a recon team that was surrounded by the 324th Division. Do we have baklam's picture coming? Let's see. Okay.
0: This looks like a mortar
8: crew? Yeah, it's a mortar platoon, yeah. That's the circle where we were at uh, the DMZ. Go, go one more. All right, yeah, stay there a minute. Okay. So we uh, had, uh, Bravo Company uh, went in to bail out a recon team in the DMZ. This would have been north of Conti Enre Ray and George. Uh, and uh, we were probably one half mile from the Ben High River, which is, separates north from the south. And um, Bravo Company unexpectedly got completely slaughtered. Charlie Company went in to Alpha Company went in to bail out Bravo Company. Charlie Company went out to bail out Alpha and Bravo Company and we set up that perimeter go back one. Okay. So we set up this perimeter one-half mile south of the DMZ. Now the, the, the thing that's so remarkable to me is that I'd only been in, com- in the country three days, and I'm already a company commander inside that perimeter from three o'clock to six o'clock. And uh, we had to evacuate, if you can believe this, and I cry when I hear it when I say this, 85 dead Marines, 85 dead Marines. It was tragic. Uh, I still remember bodies, stacks of American soldiers, heroes that were ambushed uh, in those four days, because I didn't come in until the fourth day. So I was like the cleanup crew. I missed the first and second and third days. But that was my first experience. And that probably top. saved your
0: life. Getting saved the my life. There's no question about it. Wow. And could you talk a little bit about these pictures?
8: Well, we, uh, my family, uh, since we are believers, and uh, we've been back to Vietnam eight times uh, as missionaries, and the uh, first picture on top, the soldier in the middle of my son on my left and my son on my right, this is 1996, is Colonel Baclom. Colonel Baclam is in the lower right-hand corner, and uh, Zippo is one of my clients, and uh, I presented uh, him uh, in two years later with a Zippo lighter with his name engraved on it, 324th Division, as a gift. Uh, I know his wife, I know his family, and uh, he tried to kill me uh, three days after I was in Vietnam. It was his unit that damaged Bravo Company and Alpha Company and us that day. So he was a platoon commander. I was a, a started as a platoon commander so we didn't physically see each other but we were in exactly the same place at the same time I brought all my combat maps, which I still own and I'm going to give to soldiers and sailors as a gift. But uh, we actually looked at the terrain, and he said, absolutely, this is where I was, this was my unit, and here's how we collided, here's how we ambushed Bravo Company. He knew all about it, he was right
0: there on the lines. What was it like to meet somebody, you know, three decades later, who was the enemy? I mean, did well, it, it helped, I can't imagine it that. It helped,
8: it helped me to bring closure, because he's a human being, and I love this guy now. <laughs>
0: I have a passion
8: to see him. I know his family. That motorcycle on the left-hand side, he drove me all over Hanoi. Can you believe that? He took me all over the city of Hanoi by himself. I had a personal tour.
0: That was probably as dangerous as your uh, tour. Yeah, now that
8: one on the left-hand side, in the lower left-hand side, on Baklam's bike, that would have been probably 1999. These pictures are not of the same year. I'd been back to see him four or five times
0: Does it give you a different perspective on the war and on your service to kind of meet the enemy and know they're a human being and you like them and he's a good guy? I said, Bach, let's talk
8: about uh, North Vietnam and North Vietnamese and your culture, your people. We lost 55,000 Americans. And we still had, and I can't remember what the number was, MIAs. And so through a translator, he's saying, Dan, do you know how many MIAs we have? And the number, I think if my memory stands correct, was over 250,000 unaccounted for North Vietnamese that were killed and never recovered. So it's all perspective. They were hurt. We were hurt. Interesting time in our lives and our culture and our years of...
0: Did you serve the full year? Your full year over there?
8: Uh, Well, I didn't get enough. Uh, When I, after my 13 months, Ray, I went back for another six months.
0: You went back for another six? Yeah, I didn't get enough. Because you loved it that much? I
8: loved it that much. Uh, But I had a very soft job. I was the G2 um, briefing officer for Major General uh, Raymond Davis in Dong Ha. So I had a a, a watch, you know, and seven days a week. And I was briefing the the commanding general and his staff uh, for six months. And it was marvelous. I had cherry pie, ice cream, beer, showers, everything else that was pretty nice.
0: And eventually (laughs) you did have to come home. Yeah, I did. And... Compare your experience with Ray's experience. What was your experience coming home and would it have been 1968? Well, I came, back,
8: I came back in 1969. 1969, right. okay. And I went to Camp Lejeune for, what, seven or eight months and uh, finished my tour there. Okay. Had a blind date in New York City and I met this chick that's so hot I couldn't believe it. Doug knows her, Ray knows her. And uh, fell in love and uh, that's the end of the story. I married that young lady in New York City and she's still married to me today.
0: How many happy years did you have?
8: (laughs) We've been married 46 years, probably 43.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We are being honest today, I like that, very good. And so, so much of your identity is as a Marine and I would imagine as a leader of men, um, how did that shape you after you got out of the
8: Marines? Well, I, I told uh, Tom a story when my first job that I applied for my job, my first job, I'll never forget it. There was a, a company in Detroit, Michigan, where I was born and raised. And uh, th- one of the first questions asked of me, what do you know about leadership? That was the first question.
0: A nice softball it's for a nice you, joke. huh? nice joke. Yeah, it was a nice softball. Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan. Can I tell Bray
8: one story? Sure. Yeah. Ray, joke. Fun? Funny part of Vietnam? Uh, The third time I was wounded, um, I was in uh, Da Nang because I had an infection, encephalitis, in my hand. I didn't get shrapnel out in time, and so I had all kinds of IVs in me. I'm in a hospital in Da Nang, and Bob Hope and his team came through. So I was asleep in a room by myself, and someone touched my forehead and my shoulder, and I opened my eyes, and on a scale of one to 10, this young lady was a 10 and a half, and I, I thought i died and I went to heaven. <laughs> Who was it, Do you know? No, I don't, I don't know her, the lady's name, but she was beautiful. I, uh, it would have been 1967. He says short blonde
0: hair. Did you know her, Ray? <laughs> was it your wife? <laughs> this was a Bob Hope tour. Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much, Dan. We have a lot of Marines here today. I guess we like that, right? That's okay. We love it. <laughs> so I thought I'd have another uh, Vietnam Marine talk. Uh, George Hot, this is you. Yes. How old are you here? 19. <laughs> 19 years old. Young Dan. <laughs> Why did you join? Uh, myself
5: and four other guys from little Town, Ohio, that I grew up in, we had got together and made a pact that we were going to go into the Corps together. and Why? We held true. Anything the, un- I- the uniforms really looked cool in the parade. <laughs> and one of the fathers was actually an Iwo Marine. Okay, Never talked about it. Tried to talk to him. When I come back, he would never open up. And then fortunately for me, I found this wonderful vehicle called Breakfast Club to be able to come out and share my story instead of keeping it inside. And you and, do have quite a story. Yes, and it'll be the first time that my family's hearing it. Uh, my story started on January 31st, 1967. We left out of Fubai at 0700 heading for Way City. That would have been
0: 1968.
5: 1968, excuse me. And we got into Way around 0800. There was supposed to have been a couple hundred NVA within the city causing problems for the MACV compound.
0: And, and here is the map of Way City. Where is the MACV compound right here? Correct. And where did you come in?
5: Main highway, Highway 1, right over to see where Fucan Canal is, we would have come in that oh, okay. way.
0: So you came in this way? Yes. Okay. And your objective was the MACV compound? Correct. Okay. And you got a report that there were a few hundred NVA. A few
5: hundred NVA. They sent 300 Marines in. We would later find out that there were 16,000 NVA within the city. We started taking fire once we got into traffic circle. There was a blown-up tank directly in front of us. We had to take and dismount. We started going through, house by house, these little houses, fighting our way into the MACV. The MACV, from where we got hit, was a quarter of a mile. It took us almost five hours to fight our way, that quarter of a mile into there, kicking in doors going room to room, cleaning out the enemy. We get to the MACV and the people inside the MACV started cheering us because they had taken so many runs over the night. Their compound had actually been overrun a couple times and there was only a couple dozen of these guys in there. So we get there a couple hours later We got orders that we were to go across the Perfume River Bridge and extract. That would have been this bridge? Correct. Okay. Extract a Vietnamese general. We go across the bridge. We start cresting the bridge. We started receiving machine gun fire, mortars, rockets. Took off running. We get to the other side. One Marine was in front of me jumps up, pulls out a couple grenades, takes off running at the machine gun bunker that was at the end of the bridge. He pulled the pins on on his grenades going across the bridge. He got up close to the road to take and throw them. He popped the spoons, kept running straight at the machine gun bunker, threw two grenades in, wiped out the bunker. We go down, the road a little bit further. This big square there, which was a mile square, the Citadel. Our objective was in there, the General. We get up about a third of the way on this wall and we started receiving fire. There were two gun towers. We started getting fire from 30 caliber machine guns. Along the expanse, that wall, there was two fighting levels. We were getting small arm and light machine-gun fire coming off of there. We were probably taking five to ten thousand rounds a minute in on us. When we initially went across, there were hundred and fifty of us. Fifty-five were dead or wounded within two hours. It took us almost three hours before We got orders back that we could withdraw and fight our way back across the bridge to the MACV compound. George, who is this in this picture? This is the gun platoon that I started out with. This was going into Way City. Are you in this picture? I am, Todd, right there. That's you? Yes. Out of all these people in that picture. Myself and the two people in front of me on the left side are the only ones that survived Way City. All, <clears throat> all the rest of them got killed there. That is myself and Clyde Carter. Clyde, Clyde lost his life in, Vietnam, in Way City. <sighs> that, that night after we come back, into the MACV, we had orders that at a 2,200. We were supposed to take and go out. There were some V advisors that got stuck outside in the city, they lived in the city. That's how secure the city was before this. So we're getting ready to go out about 19.30. We started getting rockets in. It must have been a whole company because we got rockets for like 25, 30 minutes. Once the rockets stopped, then the NBA made their charges at us. It just wave after wave, and we were firing and there was a light rain. It was just like there was a river of blood flowing in front of the MACV compound. We probably went through that for about an hour. Started withdrawing. About two hours later, we started getting mortars in. Mortars stopped. We knew that we were going to get hit again. And it's the same thing, we went from like 4 o'clock in the morning until almost daybreak, trying to overrun us and end us there. We fought back all of their attempts. By the time they withdrew, we had lost 24 men, another 136 wounded. We were down to about 75, 80. Healthy Marines, or as healthy as they could have out been. Out of the
0: original 300, you out have 75 original, or 80.
5: Out of the original 300. We had to take and go back out to try and accomplish the mission that we were tasked to do the night before. We started out, there was a wall before you go down the main street, which was thought the end or something like that, Don Quintai. We were running four-man fire teams at these buildings, team after team after team for six hours before we finally took our first two buildings. It took us six hours. We probably lost 10 men. Everybody was just bloodied and wounded. Once we got that foothold, we went to the next building and the next building. By the time the sun set, we had had four buildings on each side of the street. We had to take and settle down into those buildings for the night. The bodies of the people that we had killed during the day were in there with us. Our objective was to get to the University of Way City, Way University. The second day we went through the same thing. The sun comes up.
0: There's the university right there, right?
5: Yes, it, it encompassed a city block. We would get up in the morning and say our prayers, Dan. Look around because you knew at the end of the day wherever you was going to be that there was going to be a whole lot of faces that weren't there and one of them could be yours. You'd take a deep breath, open the door and run out into the fire and you were never disappointed. They, they opened up soon as... As soon as you made your move out the door, the university from the MACV was 200 yards. We started February 1 to get those 200 yards. February 3rd, we made our assault on the university. They had brought in one new company that day. They joined us and we started out the assault with 205 Marines. You can't see the detail on this map, but the square, there was no way of entering these university from the side we were coming. You had a big opening into a big open courtyard. That courtyard had a 50 caliber machine gun down in the left It had flanking fire down the whole expanse of the courtyard. The university itself was four or five stories high. And like I said, it took up a complete city block. We had to take and run across the courtyard into all the fire. Eight-man teams would run. We would... We had to take and go through the doors. The doors were all chained. Started blowing the glass out of the doors with the machine gun that I was carrying. We dipped down underneath the bars and got in. First corridor, I make a right. There's four NVA right in front of me. I opened up and then killed them. Six more come running down the hallway. We took them out. Then it was just a room-to-room sweep of the entire university. It took us 13 hours to take and gain control of it and secure it. At the end of the day, we killed almost 900 NVA within the university, almost a battalion. We were down to about 110 men then. And it was, it was agonizing. It was brutal, very bloody. It was exhausting exhausting because you're not
0: sleeping very much
5: we hadn't slept in three or four days and then you had to smell the gunpowder within the university there was no way of venting it The smoke it just burned your eyes it was horrific (laughs) very horrific
0: when did the battle end for you
5: I was one of the few that fought the battle for the whole 31 days There were six of us originally that had done the whole 31 days. At this point in time, there's only three of us left. Um, For me, it ended March 2nd, you know, but...
0: And your company, I think it's your company, received this unit citation?
5: Yeah, my company and Alpha 1-1, there were only 300 of these presidential unit citations that were given out. It was... For extreme heroism. Or right. w-
0: this little piece then must have appeared in um, a local newspaper?
5: Yes, it, it would have probably been um, East Liverpool paper. East
0: Liverpool newspaper, uh, Marine Lance Corporal George Hot Jr., or I Hot, uh, has received two Purple Heart Awards and a Bronze Star. Yes. So your parents saw that, I would imagine.
5: My parents did see
0: this. And I know you don't want to say what you got your Bond star for. Right. <laughs> okay. Too hard to talk about. It, it is. It is. I mean, this is, this is hard enough. This is hard enough. Yes. What did your par- When you came home, I kind of want to ask you the same question I asked Dan and Ray. When you came home, how in the world do you tell your parents or anybody about what you experienced in Way City? For me, I medevaced out of Vietnam.
5: When I picked up my third Purple Heart, I was actually unconscious. All I know is a paper trail. I know that three weeks after I left Vietnam, I ended up in a Naval Hospital in Philadelphia before they closed it down. And Ray, our corpsmen, we loved him. We lost five corpsmen in way the first day when we crossed the bridge, Doc Kirkham... He was running around trying to help Marines. He ran out in the street. He took two rounds and as strange as it was, both rounds were to the neck and both sides of his carotid artery.
0: It was just unreal that they would hit that way. It's very hard to imagine the kind of horrific urban combat that you're talking about. It's hard to imagine the odds of 16,000 versus 300. It's hard to imagine staying up for four days without adrenaline and you know, fighting and the danger. How in the world do you even begin to talk about it when you come home? Did you ever talk about it with your family? I did not. They have seen the documentaries. So that
5: helps a bit. Yeah, but I don't think that even the documentaries painted the picture.
0: Did people ask you about your service when you came home? And I'm talking about when you came home in uh, 1969. I think it would have been. No, no, no. And you never told anybody about it then.
5: I I didn't. And like I said, you know, this has been a great vehicle for me. The the breakfast, getting this opportunity to come out and talk with. People who would have an understanding. Right. And an interest in hearing, an interest in listening to it. I've met a lot of, a lot of nice people doing this, a lot of nice people. And I met a man down at the Meadows that was a Chosen. You know how long Bob and I talked. Sure, Chosen Reservoir in the Korean War. Comparing what it was like, him with the cold weather, the odds, you know, we, we probably talked for an hour or so before the program, and Todd had to pair us up speaking yeah. one after another. It was refreshing talking to him.
0: Thank you very much, George, for coming today. Thank, thank you. you for bringing your family.
8: Folks, I have a PS that I've forgotten, and shame on me, but I'm 72 years old, and if I don't write it down, I I forget it. The three dead Marines that uh, were, I stepped over and looked in the body bags, and they were all second lieutenants. I want to fast forward to 1996. 1996 my wife and I are having dinner at Friendship Village in the South Hills where Kitty, my wife's parents were living And I noticed over in the corner there were American flags and uniforms and honoring uh, War heroes and it probably was Memorial Day and I walk over and I see a uniform and a sword and medals Of a gentleman by the name of 2nd Lieutenant Jack Kelly killed at Contien, June 24, 1967. And he was one of the bodies I stepped over. And I met his parents, and I met his sister. Can you imagine? And I was able to at least share, and very briefly, because I didn't know him, but I stepped over his body, and I never said that. I just said, your son was an American war hero, and we honor him today. And uh, we love, and unfortunately, the sacrifice that he made. But thank you, Mom and Dad.
0: Thank you very much, Dan. You know, we always have, like I always say, we have way more stories to tell than we have time to tell them. And I regret that we do have to bring this, uh, uh, bring this program to a close today. Uh, But we're gonna have another breakfast next month. Check your newsletter. Uh, We'd love to have you attend any of our locations. We're all over the place, in in, Moon Township and Penn Hills and South Hills and please do consider joining us on September 9th. Uh, We always like to end with God Bless America, and I haven't asked Jay to lead us yet, but Jay, I'll ask you now, would you mind leading us in God Bless America?
9: God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her, through the night with the light from above, from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God. America my home sweet
0: home thank you very much Jay I hope to see you at Grazzi maybe September 14th at uh, Grazie in Luxford you've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com.